So let's do that in looking at Isaiah chapter 54. You will notice in chapter 54, though the scholars rightly put it in the middle third, there's three sections of Isaiah, the third one, or the, the middle one ends with uh, chapter 55 typically, um, but you will see a, an abrupt change or at least a, a clearly noted change happens in chapter 54, and that is on the basis of what is revealed in chapter 53. Um, before chapter 53, you have a picture of a sinful people who God's disciplining, um, interlacing promises for sure along the way, but there's a sense of hopelessness because they're so faithless or so unfaithful. Yet interspersed are these songs or these little brief revelations about the coming faithful servant who will be their substitute, who will be our substitute. And so you have promise developing and then the fulfillment in its most important form in chapter 53 with the sacrifice of the servant of Jehovah. You know, all the promises of God made to Israel are fulfilled in the one faithful servant. And so there's a a response now to that accomplished work of the Messiah on the part of the people. And God looks at his people differently, or at least he expresses it differently as we start to look at chapter 54. Before they were the unfaithful servants, and he would denote how they were unfaithful. Then servant with a capital S fulfills what we couldn't fulfill. And hereafter, even in the passage, you'll notice he speaks of the servants of the Lord, and he's talking about us now, small s, but it's in a different light. Now it's with blessing attached. So what we have here is a passage that starts to build up the picture of God's people, his church. Seed form happens in Israel. Christ comes, the, the Spirit is sent, and the church just blows open. It crosses all the different, just as uh, our elder prayed, Mike Pent prayed, about there not being these divisions. Uh, it's no longer relegated to one nation, just like we read in the Westminster Confession when we read together. It's the Catholic Church, small c, not the Roman Catholic Church. Small c means universal, people of all races and ethnicities, tribes, tongues, and nations, because they rest upon the finished work of Christ, revealed by Isaiah 53. They are part of the church. And so what we have before us is, is something focused on the people then, but it's clearly picturing something that's going to grow beyond them, and we've been able to experience some of it. The finality of it is yet to come, and that's in this passage as well. Deep passages we are in when we study the prophecy of Isaiah. Here as I read his holy word, starting at cha- uh, it's chapter 54, starting at verse 10. Remember, this is God-breathed, so therefore it's without error and it's authoritative for our lives. Verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antinomy and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me, 
Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication for me declares the Lord. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, your loving actions toward your people has given the church in every era great relief and confidence about our present trials and any future afflictions that may hit. We see your love and your commitment toward the people that you have purchased through Christ's blood. Please deepen our love for you as we study this portion of your holy word. May one result of our exposure to your word be an increased love for our Savior and Head, Jesus Christ, and also for his precious church that you have called us to be part of. I pray this in his name. Amen. One of the things that I hear regularly from people who will say they're Christians, but they don't attend church anywhere in particular, they'll say, Um, that something happened that made them distrust or dislike organized churches. Uh, I could be a Christian and not go to the church, they'll say, or go to a church. They'll cite scandals of preachers, pastors, or churches, or church members who say they're Christians but don't act like Christians. And they'll say that's why they don't join a church or they don't attend worship somewhere regularly. But here's the thing. God reveals in his word. He loves his church. And he does so knowing full well this side of complete perfection that only comes through Christ in the age to come. It is flawed. It does have messed up pastors and it has messed up people. But it's to the church that God gives the means of grace that we all so desperately need on a regular basis. I had us read the whole chapter 25. Some of you probably thought, is he really going to? Yes, because it's so full of clear explanation about the totality of what Scripture teaches. Now, when I talk about the church to you today, and that's the angle we're looking at this passage from, I want you to understand what I do mean by the church, and I think it bears connection to the passage. Chapter 54, he's talking about his people, who in seed form are the church that has come about since Christ and the Spirit has been sent to us. But the church is particular. It's, it's that which is founded upon the work of Christ in Isaiah 53. Um, a place that says it's the church, but doesn't understand, teach, preach, or believe the finished work of Christ is its basis, it's not really a church, no matter what it looks like. In fact, that's the blunt way in which our confession properly pens it. The section before the one that I have listed on your insert says something very helpful. Particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure. So we're more or less pure. We agree. No church is completely pure this side of heaven. Well, how do we know how pure? This is what's so helpful about what comes next. More or less pure according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced. Ordinances administered 
talking about the sacraments in particular, and public worship or form more or less purely in them. It's an acknowledgement, a humble acknowledgement that there is no perfect church this side of heaven. But you can make judgment on the basis of the clarity of the gospel message, how it's preached and embraced. A church to be pure or more pure must make clear how we are made right with God. That's the gospel. It is by resting upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's what Isaiah 53 declares. If a church obscures this, it's degenerated. If a church does not teach this, it's no church at all. It sounds very black and white, because it is. The gospel is what declares the church. The gospel is what defines the church. The gospel is what proclaims whether it is a church or not. It's the finished work of Christ. A Christian church is based on Christ in his finished work. Now that may seem basic enough to you, but recognize as we talk about God's commitment to the church, his promises to the church, his preservation of the church, understand what we mean by church. Not every place that is a steeple with a person standing up here in a robe is really a church. It only insofar as they're rightly understanding and proclaiming the central message that they're called to proclaim. Now with that bit of preface, I want us to see in relationship to the final line of that section I printed on your insert, it's the fifth section from that same chapter I just read from, that last line, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. That's great encouragement, that God will preserve his church. He has great plans for the church, and we see some of it in the passage before us, the picture he gives. But know that even now, this side of that eternal church that is realized upon the return of Jesus, that even now, no matter what may happen externally, there will always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Look with me at verse 10 as we start to see once again this commitment that God has made to his people. And it's, it's spoken of in the plural. We like to take verses out and use them for personal encouragement. There's nothing wrong with that. But please recognize that the driving mission of, of God is to save a people for himself. We are individually saved to be part of a people that he is saving and sanctifying. Uh, we shouldn't see ourselves as believers apart from other believers. Um, because outside the church, there isn't an ordinary way in which you'll know the gospel. That's what it means when it says in our confession, there's no ordinary way of salvation outside of the church. It simply means the church is given the message of the gospel to proclaim and to, to express. And so you can't know that apart from connection to it. With that, we have this wonderful promise to the people of God. It reveals his commitment, verse 10, which dips back into the last part of what we studied last week. But look at verse 10 again, and you see his commitment. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Brothers and sisters, this is, uh, in nutshell form, the, the gracious, covenantal, sure commitment of God to save a people for himself through Christ. How did you get all that? Well, remember 53, chapter 53 comes before, a very vivid, clear revelation of Christ to come. It says here, my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And steadfast love is a word that uh, 
These are the English words we use to translate the Hebrew word hesed, which can also be translated grace. Undeserved favor shown to those who deserve wrath. My grace shall not depart from you. In fact, it would be more likely for mountains and hills to depart than it would be for my grace to depart from you. And how do we know this is so sure? The next line, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. This is that term, covenant of peace, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. It's God's covenant. It's his commitment through Christ to secure his people's salvation. So this covenant of peace, and it gets its words exactly from Isaiah 53, where, where the chastisement that was due unto us was given to Christ so that we have peace. Um, our peace is purchased by him. God's covenant of peace shall not be removed. It's accomplished by what the Messiah, from their perspective, will do from ours, has done. Says the Lord who has compassion on you. So verse 10 begins in chapter 54, because of the revelation of chapter 53, giving us surety about salvation through the servant of Jehovah. This is the commitment of God to his church. Uh, You are in the right place insofar as we are a local expression of the church. And everyone who claims the name of Christ should be plugged into one, uh, should be a member thereof, should be accountable to. Because this is the place God has called us uh, to receive the means of his grace, which is the gospel going forth from his word, the sacraments that we partake in, prayer together in communion with one another because we're in communion with God through Christ. You know, this has been the work of God um, since creation. He has worked, I should say, since the fall, he has worked at calling a people to himself. Um, He promises Abraham early on in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and then 17. He calls him with words like this. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This refrain, I will be their God, they will be my people. You will be my God, and Lord, we are your people. This is this calling that he has placed upon his, his own people, his chosen ones. Later in Exodus, after Moses has, and this is several hundred years after the time of Abraham, God speaks through Moses to his people, promising them, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. So he's making a commitment to call them as his own. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He will make for himself a people. And this refrain happens throughout the Old Testament and is forecasted to happen to be realized ultimately through Christ. In Zechariah, written a little after Isaiah, And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So there is a a commitment that God makes to call the people to himself. Now what we see as he does this is the failures of the people of Israel to keep their end of the covenant. But this is where Jesus stands out, keeping the covenant. So to be his people, we have to be related to the only perfect one to keep covenant with God, that's Christ. So in Christ, we are his people. And this is the commitment he makes through Christ and in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, after Christ has come and fulfilled what Isaiah forecasts, the Apostle Paul speaks of the church and God's commitment to the church. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He calls the highest form of commitment that which Christ has for the church. And that's what he tells husbands to be like toward your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He was willing to die for her. That's the commitment of God to the church. That he might sanctify her, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So we have the commitment of God to the church on display in verse 10. But look at verse 11 as he starts to make promises to the people of God. And this is important for these people. They are living in a time where Babylon is now encroaching upon their, upon their land, into their capital, ravaging it, stealing everything from it. I mean, the way that a foreign oppressor would do it is they would come in, especially if they laid their arms down. Israel wasn't fighting this. They couldn't. And so Babylon takes over and basically assimilates the culture. The first thing they do is go to the, to the capital, and they strip it of all its value by taking the precious metals. And the, if they have a temple, they strip the temple of the gold, and they use it for their own stuff, send it back to their, wherever their capital is in Babylon. It would have been back over to where modern-day Iraq is. And so what you would have is this uh, occupation, and they would take the best and the brightest, and they would send them back to their capital. So they would strip the identity of Israel, of Judah, the people of God, so that they couldn't fight with their own identity. They had to be assimilated into Babylon. And uh, this is what the people were starting to undergo when this word from Isaiah is coming to them. So there are promises of God to his people, even in the midst of this, because of the work of the servant of Jehovah. Look at verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antinomy and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. So under great duress, these uh, people of Judah are called afflicted ones because they're mistreated. um, They're being pushed around, so to speak. They are afflicted, um, storm-tossed, which is a description of they're out of control. If you're in a a boat or a ship and there's a storm, you can't steer through it. You just have to go with wherever the storm takes you. They're storm-tossed. They're out of control. And they're not comforted. They're they're anxious now. They're worried. They don't know what their future looks like, what it is. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antinomy. He then gives a picture of the the rebuilding of something beautiful, a, a perfected, Davidic city. I mean, for all the beauty that the temple and the walls and the city of Jerusalem may have had, um, this description far surpasses what it, what, uh, what it once was. Now remember, the people don't even have a picture of that in front of them because they, their capital has been pillaged. He's saying, I'm going to restore to the people of God um, a picture of my glory, and it'll, you'll even see it externally with all these wonderful and incredible jewels. Set your stones in antinomy. It means to beautifully, uh, with wonderful masonry, set out stones with mortar together, and it will be beautiful. It will look awesome. Then it will also have foundations with sapphires. And sapphires are, as you know, these blue stones that are highly precious. I mean, when you're building foundations, you don't use expensive materials. You use strong materials, rocks and mortar, but you don't use sapphires and God's city, renewed city, this picture of his final glory, will have foundations laid with sapphires. It's an amazing and a lavish picture. I will make your pinnacles of agate. Agate's a crystalline type volcanic rock that looks beautiful and it's used for carvings. 
your gates of carbuncles. This is a ruby-like, red-type, precious stone. Uh, You get the picture. Uh, Priceless materials to build the city of God in its ultimate final form. It's a beautiful picture for these people, especially in that time, to behold. In Ephesians 5, talking about God's promises to the church, listen to what is said. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And listen to verse 27. So that he might present the church to him in splendor. You can see the splendor of the beautiful jewels that are pictured in the ultimate city of God that we look forward to. Hearkening to the servant's work once again in all of this comes verse 13. You remember that the servant is promised that his offspring, his spiritual offspring, will be taught by the Lord. We have it again in verse 13, another promise of God to his people. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. If, if we're taught by the Lord, our peace will be commensurate. I mean, as we understand what the Lord's will is, as he reveals, then peace comes with understanding what God's will is. It doesn't mean you'll always experience physical peace or complete unrest or complete rest from oppression. But when we're taught from the Lord, we have peace about it in an ultimate sense. Verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established. You, you, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near to you. Now, intermixed here is a classic example of how the prophets would write. They would mix things that would be happening soon in their time. They'd experience some of this. Some that would be spread out over time and realized in a, in a fuller way later. And then things that are still yet to come. What we know for sure, the commentator Moitir says, well, the people of the Lord have always been set apart by one great fact, that they possess the word of the Lord. When the servant has completed his work, this too will reach completion, and all those whom he has redeemed will stand in the Lord's presence to be taught his word of truth. So here, I think a, a positive argument could be made throughout the other prophets as well. There's a forecasting of when the servant will come and finish his work, and then what does the servant do? Ascends to the right hand of the Father. What does the Spirit do then next? Sends the Spirit. So the Spirit of God helps us do what? understand the word of God that's revealed. So we're taught by the spirit of God who God sends when Jesus finishes his cross work. Now Christ's final redemptive work in the sense of bringing it all to glory is still to come when he returns. So there's a bit of this already happening but not yet completed in its entirety and that's what we look forward to. We see this forecasted in other prophets and then Jesus in John 14 says something that's very helpful in our understanding of this. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Remember again what it says in verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Later, Jesus says in John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. You see, the promise that was yet to come for these people, and Joel, the prophet, forecast this day, the Spirit will be sent. Now we have the Spirit who indwells us. The Spirit gives us faith in Christ. 
resides in us. It helps us to understand his word. This is why you could have read the word of God 10 years ago when you weren't a believer and it made no sense to you or it repulsed you. And now you read it and you can't wait to turn to the next page. That's a spiritual gift from the spirit to help you understand the word. And where there's knowledge of God in the word, there comes peace for the person who understands that, for the people who understand that. 1 John 2.20, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Remember, the Gospel of John is written before Jesus ascends and sends the Spirit. 1 John is is written after. The same author who's seen the fulfillment and now says in 1 John to the people of God, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. And he means that you have access now because of the Spirit and the revelation that God has granted to know God and have this peace that only he can provide. This is a promise that God gives his people. But something else he tells us through our forefathers, verse 15 and verse 16 of chapter 54, if anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Here he means to say, I believe, that unlike before when I used Assyria, then Babylon and Persia, whatever countries they may be, to be tools of discipline, he's saying, my discipline will be ending with this era of exile that you're about to undergo. So strife that comes to you, it won't be because of that purpose. Verse 16, behold, but remember, I'm sovereign, he says, behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. So those who were used to bring discipline to you, I purpose for them as well, and they will ultimately meet justice. But recognize that there is a peace now that will come that I'm going to do and I'm promising will happen for my people. And brothers and sisters, in 2017, we have been able to live in light of the finished work that was forecasted in Isaiah 53, and we're founded upon that rock who is Christ. He's the cornerstone. And so it's a a beautiful picture of fulfillment that's still to come in full glory. But you see it at least forecasted here and then realized in our times. Back to Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The promise of God to present us to the Father fully, fully glorified, still yet to come. Now, this gives verse 17 all the more impact as you see this um, statement of universal application for the people of God of all time, for sure. Remember what it said in our confession to describe the Bible's teaching. There shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. So there will be tongues that rise up in judgment. The church is called to be faithful to what makes it the church, the gospel. Remember that? So it doesn't matter what comes against us. We stay sure in that, and that in itself refutes whatever accusation. Remember, the devil's the accuser. And so to the devil who says you're not really a Christian or you don't really believe in Christ who, or the church isn't really a good representative of Christ, um, we preach the message, we believe the message, and we refute the devil with that. 
And when your own flesh says, you know, I'm not as, uh, so much, I, I haven't been good enough, or I don't believe enough, or I'm not really, I'm a hypocrite. And some of those things may be true in the external, but you're in Christ. And so when those accusations come, um, you can refute it with the gospel. The same gospel that saved you is the gospel that keeps you. And so when the world comes against us and says, you're not tolerant enough, you're not really loving, because Jesus would love all these things and love everyone the same, and he wouldn't say that some people can't go to heaven if they don't believe in me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't. And the world accuses, we refute the world with the word. And we refute it with the gospel that says, no, we are sinners, but there is an answer. It's Christ. And we don't stop with that message no matter what comes to us because that's the calling for his church and his commitment and his promises will uphold us no matter what happens. That is the beauty of the promises of God that lead to his commitment to preserve the church. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. It's not to be slick in our arguments. It's to be simple in our argument. The gospel. It doesn't, we, don't, we don't need to be complicated about this. It is there. That is how we refute everything. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Do you see how this is turned? The servants were the unfaithful ones before. They were not faithful to God's covenant. But then the servant with a capital S is proclaimed to be the one who fulfill it. And now, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. What is the heritage of the servants of the Lord? That we would refute every tongue that rises against us in judgment on the basis of what? Of Isaiah 53. The finished work of Christ. That's how God's people find their place. There's a translation issue with the last part of verse 17. It's a bit complex, but look what it says, and I'll try to explain. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And the ESV chooses to say, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. I think a better translation for this would be righteousness rather than vindication. The Hebrew words are close. Not many times I disagree with the ESV, but I think this is one where they would have been better to say righteousness. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness from me declares the Lord. This is the gift we receive from the servant to us. This is the basis for how we will be preserved. The Lord's people secure from every accusation. Moitir says that neither frontal assault nor legal challenge to their right can deprive them of what their Lord has granted. Christ makes intercession for us, guarding us against any assault that could be made. Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. John 17, 15, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's talking of his disciples, who by extension, uh, who by connection, we become believers. I do not ask you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is the preservation of God for his church. In 1 Timothy, a pastor in the church at Ephesus, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and the buttress can't be moved. It's preserved. In Ephesians chapter 2, So then you, people of God, are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, for God by the Spirit. That picture of a dwelling place, a building, now we get a picture of what is Isaiah forecasting with these precious jewels and this building, the city made for God, the people of God. And then we see it in Revelation chapter 21 in even more detail. It's a, it's a metaphor for the beauty of what God is doing to sanctify and cleanse and then ultimately deliver his people to God. What can we take away from some, something like this, this truth of God's preservation of the church that's rooted in his commitment and his, his promises to the church? Just a few things that I think you probably could gather. Number one, back to the beginning. If you're in that boat where you're saying, yeah, I don't want to go to church or maybe just happen to be here, you're a visitor and you're someone dragged you here, whatever, or however it may be. God loves the church and he wants you to be part of it. If you really trust in Christ, you need to be numbered among God's people. The first thing people did in the book of Acts, the Spirit came and they, they professed Christ. They were numbered among the believers, which was very costly in the first century, more so than it is here. Um, you could be killed for being a member of the church. That's the way it is in other parts of the world. But love the church because Christ loves the church, not because we're all lovable. Don't be down on the church. It is ironic, isn't it, that we are critical of the church. We act like our being in it isn't an impact on that. We don't contribute to that because we're not hypocrites. Just they are hypocrites, right? I mean, isn't it ironic the things we judge about, that we don't judge for ourselves, we say about them who go to the church or he who's a preacher or whatever. Love the church because Christ loves it. Be numbered with the church because this is where you will find the means of grace the gifts of the Spirit, and the nurture of the community of faith that we need so desperately. You know, obviously, it's easy for me to speak because it's my calling and you say my job or my vocation. I have to be here every week. I can't skip on Sunday. But I, I do remember, though, when I was, even when I was in seminary, um, I was attending a larger church for a time where I could be missing for a couple weeks if someone wouldn't notice. I totally get why with the busyness of life that you all live in your regular, your regular week calling that it would be easy just to not come to church. And it's not all about church attendance. Just follow what I'm saying. But I think that when we take being with the people of God, you know, the, the church, the people that God has committed himself to, that he loves, that he gave his son for, that he promises, that he says he'll speak to us through by the means of God's grace— I think when we take that lightly, that we have opened ourselves up to some, uh, some real peril. Uh, because I know it doesn't take me long to forget grace. Grace is not natural. Undeserved favor to people who deserve wrath is not natural for us to think we could get it or have it in any way. We have to be told over and over again that Christ has purchased this for us. We need the gospel on a regular basis so we're reminded. And the longer we stay away from it or get comfortable not tending to it, the worse it becomes for us. We get cold. We get dry. Um, we start to get numb. We start to get down. We start to forget the gospel. And so why we're so sure to be at work on time or to be at our kids' games but to skip church makes little sense to me. 
Because this is what we need the most, is the message that's proclaimed here. Now, if it's not proclaimed at the place, you shouldn't go there. You might as well go play ball or go play golf or go sit and read a book or whatever. But if the message of the gospel is clear at the place, you better be there. We ought to be there. We have a picture of what ultimately will be for the people of God that mirrors this one in Isaiah in Revelation. And I'll close with this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Now usually we we read Revelation, what we bask in, and we should, is the picture of Jesus. But here is a picture of the bride of Jesus, the church, in its final form. Obviously, metaphorically, but powerfully. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. He's picturing what what the people of God will look like. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. I'll skip a few verses just for the sake of time to the ongoing vision. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, there's the sapphire reference, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, And the city of the gate was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. light, and, And its lamp is the Lamb. That's a glorious picture of our future. The people of God's future. I know we got warts right now. I know we're not pretty many days. But make no mistake, he binds us together by the gospel of Christ as it continues to go forth. Every time we hear it, we're renewed by it again. And we recognize where righteousness really comes from. And that helps us in our obedience. In that final picture of the glory that God has for his church, when it's realized, when it's focused upon, it gives us encouragement. It helps us. And it makes us understand why the divines who wrote the confession could say with such confidence, there shall be always a church on earth. To worship God according to his will. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the promises that you have made to your people. Lord, we pray that with your church you would abide. You are our Savior, our Lord, and our guide. And though on earth our faith is tried, we ask you once again to hear us. Please keep our life and doctrine pure. Please grant us patience to endure trusting in your promises because they are sure. Lord, again, we beseech you, hear us. And I pray this through Christ. Amen. Let's together turn to the song that I just recited partially in this prayer. 
and sing it as a prayer. That's the way it was designed. 348, we'll stand and sing the first six verses as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. 348.